I'd like to have you turn to the 49th chapter of Genesis. And uh, we're coming now to the close of our studies in Genesis, begun about six months ago. And uh, we've come to the close of Jacob's life. He gathers his family around him, and he begins to tell them what will take place in, in their latter days. Uh, those of us that are fathers and mothers know that our children are all different. I am always amazed when I look at my three sons. They're not at all alike. And uh, if I were to sit down and characterize them, they would be three totally different and unique individuals. That's what, that's what Jacob is doing here. He's doing a, a kind of character analysis of his 12 sons. He's uh, lived with them for a period of time. He's seen certain traits in them. And uh, he's going to describe for them their strengths and also their weaknesses and predict the outcome of their lives. Now, this is more than merely human prediction, as Hebrews 11 puts it. Uh, Jacob, by faith, predicted what would, would happen to his sons and bless them. So there was an element of, of the supernatural here. God is revealing to Jacob certain things that, that a father couldn't know just by unaided reason. But uh, he is a keen observer of these boys, and he understands them. And so he tells us something about, about their character. Now, the interesting thing about this chapter is that it also tells us something about ourselves. And as he surveys these sons, we can see ourselves here. I think you'll find yourself somewhere uh, in this picture. You can identify with one of his 12 sons. Now let's begin with, with verse 1, chapter 49. And Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. This sounds very much like the book of Proverbs where a father instructs his son and uh, admonishes him to listen. These are important words, things to which these sons must give heed. And then he begins uh, with Reuben, the firstborn. Now, the structure of this chapter is very easy to follow. He takes the first six sons, who were the sons of, of Leah, his first wife, then the next four, who were the sons of his handmaidens, and then finally the last two sons, who were the descendants of of uh, Rachel, his beloved Rachel, and tells us what they're like. Now, if we were going to do this, we probably would start with Asher and conclude with Zebulun and do it alphabetically, but uh, he starts with his firstborn, Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, unto my couch, and defiled it. And then, in an aside to the other brothers, as though in unbelief, he says, he went up. It was just unbelievable to Jacob what Reuben had done. Now, Reuben was a man who had uh, great potential. He was a very strong personality. The term here that is translated excelling in, in power or strength is a word that means uh, daring. He was a venturesome young man. This is the kind of man that was a hot dog skier and liked to um, hang glide and, and do things like that. He liked to venture himself. 
strong man, strong personality. But he's described as uh, turbulent as water. He was like a wild mountain stream, uncontrolled, uncontrollable. He didn't have his passions under control. And as an example, if you go back to, the cha to chapter 35, you have this poignant note. It just, uh, it's just one line in the text, almost as an aside. After the death of Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, Reuben slept with Bilhah, her handmaiden, and, uh, and Israel heard. Jacob found out about it. He was crushed. Just could hardly believe it. This young man who was, who was the preeminent son, the one through whom the, the inheritance should have passed, the one through whom the line of salvation would have gone, had uh, given up all of his privilege for one, one moment of passion. Couldn't control himself. Tremendous potential and strength ability, but he was uncontrolled. I know a lot of men like that, strong men, strong drive, aggressive, venturesome men, exciting people to be around. You just love to be with them, but they, they just, they have no controls. I had a man just a couple of weeks ago tell me that he knew if he pursued the course he was taking, he was going to destroy his family, but he couldn't stop doing it. No controls. Reuben was a man who needed a Lord. He needed someone to control his life. And then there's Simeon and Levi, the next two sons, and they're linked together as brothers. And, and the point here is that they're more than blood brothers. They were that. They were both uh, sons of, of Leah. But his point is that they're birds of a feather. They're alike in that their, their swords are weapons of violence. They were violent men. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. In other words, Jacob disassociates himself from these two men and their actions. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I'll scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. You know the story. The people in the town of Shechem assaulted, or one of the individuals in the town of Shechem assaulted Dinah, their daughter. And uh, their sense of justice was outraged, and so they took things in their own hands and they, uh, they, uh, they slew the inhabitants of the city. They completely annihilated the population of this one city. And they went way beyond that. They hamstrung cattle, cut the tendons in the backs of, of oxen's feet, just out of sheer cruelty. They were ruthless men. Hard men, violent men. Some of you have seen the bumper sticker that shows up around uh, town every once in a while. God made men, but Winchester made them equal. And uh, regardless of how you feel about gun control laws, that's not a Christian sentiment. Because it's not, a, it's not our prerogative to settle issues with guns. That's not right. That's not the way God does things. It's never right to take vengeance into your own hands. Only God can judge. And to equalize things by, the, by a peacemaker or whatever, that's not right. It's not God, God's way. Uh, it never works, the, the righteousness of God. Paul says that. The wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. 
uh, Paul's desire, as he sa states it in 1 Timothy, is that men everywhere lift up holy hands in prayer without anger. You don't settle things through violence, ruthlessness. But there are some men like that. And uh, I think all of us, to some extent, uh, pick up that trait in ourselves, a tendency to go out and redress evils on our own, just settle things uh, in our own way. And that was Simeon and Levi's problem, and, and as a result, these nations, these tribes were scattered. They lost their, their power. Simeon was very early assimilated into the tribe of Judah, simply ceased to exist after a while as a tribe. And the tribe of Levi was, was distributed throughout the other tribes. They never had an inheritance, so they were scattered. Then there's Judah in the verse 9. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Judah's name is a play on the word praise. When Leah had this fourth son, she named him Judah because she says, now I will praise the Lord. For her first three sons she thought would bring her husband back to her, but they didn't. And so uh, when she had this fourth son, she said, now I'll praise the Lord. In other words, I'll let the Lord satisfy me. Jacob will never do that. And she named this little boy Praise in uh, memory of that decision that she made. And so Jacob plays on that idea. Jacob, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. In other words, you'll be in a position of authority. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rescue him? Uh, you'll find throughout this, uh, this list of, of blessings that very often these young men are described as animals. And here Judah is described as a lion who lies down and no one rouses him. You know, you don't go poking lions with a stick. Uh, you leave him alone. You don't hassle a lion. And that's the way Judah is characterized. He's self-confident, strong man, powerful man, confident, a leader. And uh, through him, Jacob says, the ruler would come that, that all of humanity was looking for. The scepter, that is the symbol of rule, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. No one knows what that means where Shiloh means there is a, a geographical location in Israel called Shiloh, but that's, that's a different word, spelled differently. Uh, practically all the rabbis were agreed that this is a reference to Messiah. Long before, 1,800 years or so, before Messiah came, Jacob predicts that Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, the, the authority, the rulership belongs, will come through the tribe of Judah. There is a progressive narrowing down of the line, as you know, through the book of Genesis. It begins with, with Messiah being a man. He would be the seed of the woman. He wouldn't be an angel or a man from outer space. He'd be a man. And uh, he would be a Semite. He would come through the line of Shem. He wouldn't come from Europe. Uh, he wouldn't come from North Africa. He would be Semitic. And then there's a further narrowing down to the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would be a Jew. And now we're told what tribe within the nation of Israel he would come. He'd be of the tribe of Judah, and then later in Samuel it's narrowed down to the family of David. So you have a progressive uh, uh, specialization of the line until it culminates in the coming of Christ. But Judah is told here that he would be the ruling tribe, that he would have the authority. He would have the rights of the firstborn because the first three had been disqualified with all of the responsibility that entails. 
And like Reuben and Simeon and Levi, he needed a Lord. He needed someone to, to enable him to bear that responsibility. And then in verse 13, the fifth son, Zebulun, is described, Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. Zebulun was a, was a trader. He was a merchant. His border, we're told, will extend towards Sidon. Sidon was the capital of, the, of Phoenicia. The Phoenicians were the great traders of that day. And uh, apparently Jacob noticed very early this young man had a head for business. He was shrewd, good trader. Probably made his first uh, dollars uh, selling uh, used camels or something. And uh, progressed from that to uh, being much more successful in business. And he had a trading instinct and he became a merchant and was allied with the Phoenicians. In their, uh, in, their, in their worldwide trading enterprises. Gifted man in this realm. And, and Jacob saw that, but there's, there's always a danger, and there's a hint of it here because we're told his border will be towards Sidon. That is, he'll always be on the edge of things. He'll be out in the world system where it's easy to fall prey to the thinking of the world. And he too needs a Lord. And then in verse 14, the last son of Rachel or of Leah, pardon me, Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant it is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Issachar was a laborer. He was like a bony donkey, strong and, and sturdy, hard worker. Uh, when I think of Issachar, I always think of these great big kids that come out of the Texas oil fields or the Pennsylvania steel mills, you know, that, that end up in some Big Ten uh, school playing their, you know, interior linemen. And, and this is, we'd probably refer to him as Leo Isikorsky or something. Big, uh, tough, raw-boned fellow, but, but a tendency toward, toward lacking in ambition and being phlegmatic and, and ending up serving others, being used. Hard worker but he's going to submit to servitude. And so there's a warning here. And Issachar as well needs a Lord. He needs someone to rule in his life and control him. And then in verse 16, Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a servant by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the, the horse's heels so that his rider tumbles backward. As uh, Jacob looked at Dan, he realized that he... He was a, a shrewd, wise young man, had a keen analytical mind, legal mind, and, and he would be a judge, and his descendants would be judges in Israel. But inherent in that, in that shrewdness, he saw in, in Dan a tendency toward treachery, be a little bit tricky, uh, deceitful, devious. And so he alerts him to that fact. He's like a serpent that bites from behind, unexpected attack. And this brings forth uh, a prayer in verse 18. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. As he's enumerated the characteristics of these young men and he thinks through the turns that their life will take, he's jolted by the fact that he can't change them. They have certain qualities that are worthwhile, but there are other qualities that are destructive, and he sees those, those characteristics in their lives, and he can't change them. And so he prays for deliverance from the Lord, that the Lord would change them. 
You ever wake up in the middle of the night and think about your kids and, and you see the direction of their life or you see elements in their life that disturb you and you wish you could change them if you could just grab them and shake some sense into them and say, change here. But you can't do that. Only God can change people. That's why Jacob cries out at this point as he surveyed these sons up to this, up to this last son, Dan, and he sees the treachery in Dan's life. He says, Lord, I ask for your deliverance. If there's going to be any salvation around here, it's going to come from you. And then Gad, verse 19, Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Gad was a fighter. And uh, eventually his little tribe settled over on the east side of the River Jordan. They were a kind of frontier people on the vanguard and a buffer tribe out there. And, and every, every nation that came across what today is, is Saudi Arabia had to come through Gad. They had to fight them off. And so they grew up to be a tough little tribe. They were fighters. And though they were attacked by a band of raiders, they would, they'd fight back. In verse 20, Asher, Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies for a king. Asher, I think, had a little deli down in the Negev where he served camel caravans. That was a camel stop. And uh, he had an old recipe that had been handed down by his family, Red Stew, and uh, became famous for that. He was a good cook. And uh, Jacob always appreciated good cooking, being... Uh, sort of uh, a devotee of good food himself. And he recognized that in this young man. And his prediction is right. It's from this little tribe that most of the delicacies came to Solomon's table. They became a very affluent people. Small tribe, but very powerful. And, and they provided for the king's table throughout much of Solomon's reign. And then there's Naphtali, verse 23, Bilhah's son. Naphtali is a doe set free. He uses beautiful words. Naphtali was, a, was an artist, a craftsman. Uh, he, was, he was a free spirit. He was like a doe set free, sprightly and, and free in his thinking, and he used beautiful words. He's had a way with words, could express himself well. And Jacob appreciates that about Naphtali. And then let's skip over Joseph and go to Benjamin in verse 27. We'll come back to Joseph in a moment. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the plunder. Uh, Benjamin was the baby of the family, and that was always the smallest tribe, very small tribe, but a tough little tribe. Some of the great leaders in Israel came out of Benjamin, Saul, who had such great promise, the first king of Israel, Jonathan, and later Saul of Tarsus, Paul, was a Benjaminite. They were noted for their, their fighters, their tough little men that came out of this, out of this tribe, small but, but powerful. He describes them as a, as a rapacious wolf. In the morning, he devours his prey. In the evening, he divides his plunder. It's a merism. It just means all, all the time. He wins. He conquers. He's unconquerable, even though he's frequently assaulted. I have, a, I have a friend back in the Bay Area who's a cop, and he's just a little guy. And he probably doesn't weigh more than about 130 pounds, soaking wet. And uh, he was sitting in our living room one time. A number of us were talking to him and asking, asking him how things were going. And he told us uh, 
an incident that had happened the week before when he had heard cries from a store and he went inside the store and here was a man who was uh, using a abusive language on a clerk and as, as he ran in the, in the store, the man pulled his revolver out of his holster. And he's a great big guy and the next thing he knew he was looking down the barrel of this, of this revolver that looked like a cannon. All he could see was this big hole. And I said, what'd you do? So I took it away from him. And uh, we looked sort of incredulous. And he said, uh, he said, well, he said, I may be little, but I'm honoring. And that's Benjamin. Tough little tribe, like a ravenous wolf. As you look through these, these sons, I think we can identify somewhere along the line. They're all characterized by certain attributes or qualities that we can identify with. Somewhere we can find ourselves there. There are good things, good qualities, but there are dangers that uh, lay alongside. And Jacob is alerting these sons to their need. They need something else. They don't have enough. They needed what Joseph had. Jacob had seen his sons decline in spiritual vigor to the point where they had bought right into Canaanite society. They were acting just like the Canaanites. Nothing distinctive about them. The only son who was distinctive in his life was Joseph. As you read through this account, you, you can't help but see that Joseph is different. He's unique. There's something about There's a quality to his life that the other, other young men didn't have. And in fact, we're told in the, in the last sentence of verse 26, let all those rest on the head of Joseph on the brow of the prince who is singled out among his brethren. Now, the word prince is the word from which uh, the word Nazarite later comes. The Nazarite was someone who took a special vow that set him apart from the rest of the nation. And, and there's something about Joseph that sets him apart. He's unique. He's distinctive. He's not like the others. He's a prince among them. What was it? Well, Jacob tells us in verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring, like a vine that has its roots down deep into the soil right by a spring where there's a never-ending resource, adequate water, whose branches climb over a wall. So he not only had depth, but his influence was per pervasive and extensive. He was like a vine crawling over a wall far-reaching influence, fruitfulness. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong hand stayed limber or nimble. It's a picture of someone quickly plucking arrows out of his quiver and placing them in the bowstring in nimble fingers. And his arrow, was, his bow remained sturdy. Stood against all these attacks. You know, it was, it was Joseph's lot from the time he was a child to be under stress. When he was 17 years of age, he was sold into slavery, and he spent a whole lot of his life in prison, as you know. He went from bad to worse until his final exaltation. Things were tough for Joseph, but that's how he learned to trust God. That was what distinguished him from his brothers. His brothers were all going the other way. They were humanists. They were trusting the world. They were believing in themselves. But uh, Joseph counted on God. Very early in his life, he had made room in his life for the Lord. He gave place to him. That's what characterized him. 
we're told why his bow remains steady. It's because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. Because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Because of your father's God who helps you. Because of the Almighty who blesses you. You see, that's what set Joseph apart from his brothers. He had his roots down in the Lord. He had a heart that was committed to him. He was responsive to his leadership. He was drawing on his resources. That's what made him different. The interesting thing is that nothing said about Joseph's apparent successes. He was, as you know, the vice regent of Egypt. Egypt was one of the superpowers of that day. And Joseph was second only to the Pharaoh. He was the second most powerful man in the nation of Egypt. And Egypt was the dominant power in the, in the ancient Near East at that time. So he was a big man. He was a highly successful man. Jacob doesn't even mention that. He says the thing that makes Jacob distinctive was his relationship to God, his wholehearted devotion to God, because he knew who God was, and he understood him, and he trusted him. And what Jacob does is to enumerate for Joseph, by way of reminder, the names by which God was known in this family. You know, through the Old Testament, whenever someone had an experience with God, normally a name was given to God that memorialized that event. Uh, I just discovered this last week that Moses, one of Moses' names for God was the bush dweller, literally, the bush dweller. Because in Deuteronomy 33, where he's going through, the again, the, the same uh, sort of thing, the blessings on the tribes in that case, he describes the Lord as the one who keeps on dwelling in a bush. And, of course, what Moses is referring to was the incident at, in, the, in the desert of Sinai when God appeared to him in a bush and called him to be the deliverer. And as you know, the point of that whole story is that any old bush will do. There was nothing significant about the bush. It was just an old piece of drip, you know, creosote bush or whatever out in the desert, tumbleweed. God made it significant because he dwelt in the bush. That's what Moses learned. So from that point on, God was the bush dweller. Moses was the bush. God indwelt him. That's what made him significant. Those names you see are important. And so Jacob reminds Joseph that he is, first of all, the mighty one of Jacob. The word mighty here is a term that's used throughout the Old Testament for, for manly things. So God is a manly God. He's the one who makes it possible to be a man or to be a woman. You know, even women have to be manly. We all know what it means to be a man. Nobody has to tell us. C.S. Lewis says uh, you would never clap an alligator on the back and say, be an alligator. But we frequently clap men on the back and say, be a man. And we know what that means. It may mean to act in courage in a, in a particular situation. It may mean to be the first to ask forgiveness in a particular situation. That's manliness, you see. We don't need to be told what it is, but when we need manliness, we have the hands of the manly one. That's what Jacob knew. That's what Joseph knew. That was his resource. And secondly, he's a shepherd. It's not only manly, he's a shepherd. Because we not only need courage, we need comfort. Even tough old men need comfort. 
Uh, Marcy sang a song a couple of weeks ago for us, and I appreciated very much her singing, but there was one line that really disturbed me, and perhaps it did some of the rest of you. It was just the statement, the father to his daughter, don't ever let the world see you cry. And I don't understand that, because the most manly person I know, Jesus Christ, wept. It's not unmanly to cry. Even the toughest old men sometimes need comfort. We all need it. God's a shepherd. So he puts it, the big arm that he, that he bears in deliverance, the arm that put the stars in the sky, is the arm that he puts around us in time of need, draws us in like a, a, a lamb that's lagging behind. So he's a shepherd and he's a rock, the rock of Israel. In other words, he's, he's a foundation. He's something stable. When everything else is falling apart, when the family seems to be falling apart, I heard one man say yesterday, that he does not know one of his friends who has a happy home. Not one. They're either getting a divorce or they've just gone through a divorce or they're thinking about it. And that's what's happening all around us. You look in the statesman tomorrow and, and you'll discover an interesting statistic. There are, it's, you know, all the births, deaths, marriages are listed there. And there are as many divorces as there are marriages contracted in, in Boise every day. And we say, what's happening to the family? The foundations are being shaken. Economically, as a nation, we're being shaken. Many of the foundations on which our nation is, was placed are being ripped away. Where's the foundation? Where's something we can count upon that's lasting and durable and stable and firm? It's the God who's the rock of Israel. And that's what sustained Joseph when he was thrown in prison, when he was lied, uh, when he was deceived, when people lied about him, they bore false witness. The thing that gave stability to his life was the God who is a rock. And because of your father's God who helps you. In other words, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and whenever that term is used in the Old Testament, it's a reference to God's loyalty to his covenant. God promised Abraham that he would bless him and his descendants, and regardless of what Abraham and his descendants did, God had promised to bless him, and he was going to bless him. And Jacob was the biggest scoundrel of them all, big schemer. Jacob knew it, but God was committed to him. He was loyal to him. Uh, to put it in Paul's terms, though we are unfaithful, he abides faithful still, for he cannot deny his own. He's loyal to us, God of our fathers. And finally, he's the Almighty One who blesses you. That's the term we talked about a couple of weeks ago, El Shaddai, the God who is sufficient, the God who is enough, the God who is all we need. We think we need something else. I always do. You know, if I had just this, then I'd be satisfied. Or this, or this, or that. That's a bottomless pit, as we all know. The more you get, the more you want. Nothing ever satisfies. But this is the God who is enough. As David puts it, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't need anything else. It's all I need. And you see, that's what made Joseph distinctive. He had that sort of Lord. And that's what sets us apart from the world. That's what we need, a Lord like that. We can see all of these other conflicting tides in our life, that the passions and drives, the strength, the weakness, all of this going on constantly in our lives. And we say, where's the Lord who'll help us out? This is the Lord who helps us out. He's this kind of guy. And we need to begin by saying, Lord, I'll do it your way. That's where we start. I don't care what it costs or where it takes me. 
I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll be whatever you want me to be. I just want you to be the Almighty One, the Sufficient One, the rock of my life, the one that I need. And then He begins to set you apart to make us truly distinctive in the world. Not a painful thing. It's a great prospect that God has for us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do need a Lord. And our problem is that we just don't want you to rule all of our life. We're willing to let you control the areas of our life that are uncontrollable, that get us in trouble and embarrass us. But uh, we, we have large areas of our life where we basically are, are running things. And that's where we need you. And we thank you for coming for our sake, dying for us, living today, accessible to us. We want you to come into our lives, Lord, and, and rule. Make us the kind of people that, that we want to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.